0: Well, welcome back to another segment of Beyond the Grassy Knoll, and we have with us today Dave McGowan. He's been on before, um, but this uh, theme to which he's going to speak is much different than the last uh, he shared with us, uh, back probably over a year ago. Um, uh, He has really gotten a lot of attention out of folks uh, with this last series about which we will speak, and it's entitled by Dave, Inside the L.C., the strange but mostly true story of Laurel Canyon and the birth of the hippie generation. And uh, I had—I won't tell you I had a ringside C for that. I was on a, I was on a field playing, Dave. <laughs> so welcome to the grassy knoll, and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. Good to be back. <laughs> okay. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been, and thanks for coming. And hopefully we can do a couple of shows with this, because just as you've said yourself, this topic... Um, it is—it is labyrinthine. I mean, it, it just goes all over the place, and uh, we've had that kind of same feeling with Adam Gorightly and Andy Colvin with what they've covered. It is absolutely fascinating, and um, y- you think it's over, and it's not over by any means. And that's exactly what you're dealing with right now. Now the series is just four parts long, but <laughs> what would you—what uh, would you uh, guess might be a ballpark number of um, parts that this could turn out to be?
1: I'm guessing probably a dozen at this point but uh it's I mean it's a, it's a it's very much a work in progress. I'm still actively doing research and still updating my notes and I mean I just have tons and just pages and pages and pages of raw raw notes that I somehow or other have to uh try to shape into the remainder of this story um it, it's hard to say at this point but i i would guess that it'll probably run at least 12 installments
0: now it, it, pardon the pun but would you consider Laurel Canyon the epicenter of something
1: oh absolutely absolutely it, it was definitely the epicenter of something exactly what i don't know and uh which I gotta say came as quite a surprise to me, actually, because uh, I don't know if you know this, but I I live I could I could jump walk out the door right now and get in my car and be in the very heart of Laurel Canyon in like 15 minutes from my front door, and I've I've lived within a half an hour of it my entire life here in the LA area, and you know I've actively been researching this kind of stuff for. Uh, I don't know a good 10 15 years and yet I knew nothing about this place or the significance of it uh up until like a year or two ago I knew absolutely nothing about it and yet uh here it is right in my own backyard and uh completely unknown to me and to just about everybody else in the uh in the uh quote unquote conspiracy community it's it's known to some degree to uh you know people that are real hardcore uh You know rock and roll aficionados that that really followed this stuff through the 60s and and whatnot but uh the the importance of it is no is not is not generally known at all i mean i i literally i drive through i've been driving through it all my life uh to get to work from it's a it's an easy way to get from the valley into the the west side of la you know either Laurel Canyon cold water and, and whatnot and uh, you know I've been driving through it off and on my whole life and yet never never had a had a clue that, that, that there was any special significance or any special history that this place had
0: let me just ask you uh, with uh, let's see using the Hollywood Bowl as a reference point where is uh, Laurel Canyon in reference to that
1: uh, for the Hollywood Bowl yeah anywhere near it okay uh, Kind of, sort of. It actually, it sits right above the Sunset Strip, what is known as the Sunset Strip, which is the section of Sunset Boulevard that used to be sort of an unincorporated strip that was like speakeasies and brothels and whatnot, and then later became this big club scene. But uh, it sits basically right above, uh, like, uh, West Hollywood, West L.A. area, and uh, the north it empties out into like studio city north hollywood area it's it's um it's fairly close to the hollywood sign it's probably like a few miles west of the of the hollywood sign Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to (laughs) to describe to people that aren't familiar with the layout of uh of the of the city of la and the san fernando valley and whatnot but
0: uh i just spent some time uh, with a First cousin of mine, back in like '75, he was a screenwriter at that time, and uh, he was living on Highland Avenue, which branched off whatever that whatever the road is on which the Hollywood Bowl sits. And um, I've, I've forgotten the name of it, but he was up in the hill someplace on the east side, away from uh, the Hollywood Bowl. But um, you know, that's that's all I re- remember of L.A. And actually, I remember very little what I did out there, thankfully. So uh,
1: that. Yeah. The Hollywood Bowl, I think it sits in the Kawanga Pass, I believe, doesn't it? Where, which is where the 101 freeway uh, cuts through. And then, uh, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's not far. It's not too far from there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's,
0: it's, I don't know. <laughs> no, there was just a lot of topography there, and it was in the hills. And I was wondering when, when I was, um, and I know there is a map, kind of a map, um, that's associated. Well, you have it built in one of your articles about the layout of uh, Laurel Canyon. But uh, when did? What, what, for folks who aren't that familiar with it, Laurel Canyon. What, how would you how would you define it? Uh, and uh, uh, to what era would you say it's best associated?
1: It is. How would I describe it? It's a uh, it's a very sort of secluded, uh, sort of exclusive almost self-contained sort of neighborhood. It's not actually a city at all. It's it's a A, a community, I guess you could say, uh, sort of a self-contained community up in the Hollywood Hills that's fairly secluded in in that there's really only one road into there, which is Laurel Canyon Boulevard, which cuts through. Um, and Laurel Canyon Boulevard actually carries quite a bit of traffic these days because it's, like I said, it, it's a, it's an easy way to, to uh, cut through directly from the valley to the, to the west side. But if you get off of Laurel Canyon Boulevard into, in, onto any of the little, uh, you know, little winding uh, side streets that branch off of it, they're, they're mostly all, they're pretty much all dead end roads. So once you, once you know, there's really, there's only one way in, and then you're just sort of in this maze of. Uh, winding roads that go nowhere so once you get in actually into the canyon it's very very kind of secluded and very self-contained it has its own uh, little grocery store and its own little boutique shops and and uh, various things like that It has its own elementary school at one time it even had its own newspaper which is where that map came from back in the olden days so it's this sort of it's 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 almost. I mean, you go up there and it's all you, you feel like you're not even really in L.A. anymore. I mean, you're you're up there in in this very wo- heavily wooded, very rustic, serene uh, sort of you know mountain setting, you know, sort of a country setting, and uh, it's very easy to forget that you're actually in the city of L.A. Although you have you have great views down onto the uh, you know commoners down, <laughs> down below from up there but once you get up there it it's just it just seems so far removed from the city itself i mean it's like you it's almost like you you you've jumped on a plane and, and uh, you know gone to somewhere some remote location because it's it, it, uh, it has its own its own unique distinct feel that's separate from uh, you know the city itself
0: well now i had asked you to what here that um areas most associated with, that's really not a fair question, because that place has always been the place to be, so to speak, uh, from the 20s with, with, um, uh, I guess, Hollywood uh, film starlets and such, uh, right up through the 60s and 70s, which you deal the most with, but isn't that the reason why, too, that it is a self-contained place, you don't drive through Laurel Canyon, if you're going in there, you're going in there to see somebody, you got business, there's no drive-through, and if those people don't want to come out for whatever reason, they really don't have to.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, the 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 Laurel Canyon grew up with the film industry. They it it was uh, it was developed in conjunction with the you know the onset of the uh, the movie industry. And from the very beginning, that was one of the main uh, you know the the people that that flocked to the canyon were a lot of the, the early movie stars who could uh, you know get up and and you know have some privacy and seclusion. You know, you're out, you're out. Pretty much, you know, in the boonies is the is the feel of it when you're up there. You feel very far removed from from the city, and so it had a it definitely had an attraction for the movie people who wanted, you know, the the privacy and and the uh, you know to to get away from it all, so to speak. So yeah, it's always been a. Uh, it's always been a favorite place for the Hollywood crowd ever since its, its earliest development back in, you know, like 1913 is when, when development really first began on it. And uh, right from the beginning, I mean, the, some of the earliest residents were like Tom Mix, Harry Houdini, Wally Reed, uh, you know, all these big name, Ramon Navarro, these big... Uh, you know the big Hollywood icons of that day, and it's been like that ever since. I mean, if you look at you know, every decade since then, you know you've had people like W.C. Fields and, and uh, Robert Mitchum, and you know in the '50s you had all these these young, uh, you know, the the young stars like James Dean and uh, Natalie Wood and Dennis Hopper and Sal Mineo, and yeah, it's 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 been a it's been an exclusive, sort of, you know, very very upscale uh, retreat, you know, for, for people with, with money, uh, including the Hollywood crowd, you know, since since its, uh, since its inception.
0: Uh, and you really, you do provide a bit of a history, just as you give us now in that series, but you deal with it uh, mainly as uh, some kind of really epicenter for the 60s and 70s uh, rock and roll uh, scene.
1: That's, yeah, that's when it really, uh, I mean, that was kind of Laurel Canyon's heyday, yeah, from uh, like the, say, uh, mid 60s, from like around 1965 through the late 70s up until almost like till 1980. It was just this, yeah, just a huge epicenter of, of uh music of, of this this new uh you know the, the new uh 60s uh brand of uh rock and roll music beginning with uh the birds and buffalo springfield and the turtles and the mother's of invention the doors love the mamas and the papas and then uh, from there <laughs> which i haven't gotten to in the series yet but from there uh following that 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 first big you know uh batch of bands that came out of there, then it kind of shifted over to like a a singer-songwriter kind of thing, and you had uh, James Taylor, and uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, Judy Collins, Carole King, uh, Jackson Brown, and then from there, then the next sort of wave was all these like uh, country rock uh, country rock sort of people like, uh, America and, uh, flying burrito brothers and Poco and, uh, the Eagles. And it's just, it's an amazing list. If you look at the, the complete list of all of the singers and songwriters and musicians that, that, uh, emerged from that Canyon over like a 10 year period, it's just, it's, it's staggering. I mean, it's just, it's it's unbelievable how many people came out of this this very small, very isolated little canyon community over the you know beginning in the uh, in the mid '60s and, and onward.
0: Uh, there didn't have to necessarily be anything there of this of uh, sort. I, I'm going to assume that th- there are no recording studios there, but that place is a hop, skip, and a jump from from um, I would assume lecture Asylum and some other recording uh, studios.
1: Yeah, it's just uh, it's just above the uh, the sun, yeah the Sunset Strip and, and uh, yeah, it, it, but they there wasn't a there wasn't a huge amount of uh, recording studios and whatnot before uh, the big influx of bands. They actually kind of in, in a big way they kind of created the the LA music scene and made it what it is today. Made LA the epicenter of the. Uh, of the music world that's one point that i made in the in, in the series is that they, they weren't coming here because this was the you know the mecca for musicians they they made it that the and, music and, right uh, all of these these uh you know asylum records was actually started here by david geffen he you right. know, signed up a lot of these people and uh you know some a lot of these 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 record companies they they were mostly based in New York at the time, and some of them didn't even have West Coast representatives when this whole scene started to break, and they had to kind of you know get people out here to start signing up all these bands. Uh, but yeah, there, there's there's uh, you know there was there was some you know there was to some degree there was recording studios and whatnot, but th- these bands really. Really, kind of made made the scene what it is today, and a lot of them actually built their own recording studios. You know, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys built his own. John Phillips built his own. Frank Zappa, and, you know, a lot of these guys built their own uh, home studios. Mike Nesmith of the Monkees built his own. And so, yeah, the, the, they uh, they really transformed the whole L.A. music in, in the whole music industry in general. Because I mean, some of the the albums, and it ended up coming out of Laurel Canyon. Just, just, I mean, they they sold they sold so many copies, and they just they just completely trans. They were, it was kind of the beginning of the whole corporatization of the uh, of the music industry with these just huge monster albums that came out, like you know, Carole King's Tapestry and the, the Eagles' Hotel California, and. Uh, Fleetwood Max rumors and just you know these just huge 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 monster albums that completely redefined what what a hit record was and you know um, so yeah it was it was the, the the music industry in L.A. really grew up around uh, all of these bands but there was some facilities uh, to begin with but but uh, it was
0: more a case that they went ahead and made it the scene, and then the industry followed the scene. Pretty so,
1: much so, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, uh, before that, uh, yeah, before that, the, it, the the music scene was basically centered in Nashville, New York, and, uh, I'm drawing a blank, the, the
0: Memphis, I think it was. Oh, with Sun Records. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, uh, and yeah, and, and L. A. was just sort of a real uh, a minor player, you know. L. A. had the had the was the movie, you know. They had the the, the Hollywood, they had the motion picture uh, industry pretty much centered here, but the music industry really wasn't until uh, until like the late '60s. I just read the other day that the like prior to that, like in 1963 or something, of the the number one songs. The songs that hit number one, and uh, for that year, like something like 26 of them came out of New York, and like three of them came out of L.A. And uh, within like a few years, those those numbers had like completely reversed, and L.A. had become become by far the dominant, uh, you know, music producer. The music capital of the of the country of the world, pretty much.
0: It also seemed to me that um, one of the places to be seen out there as well, or at least to perform, uh, a, a club I guess that comes up time and time again is the Troubadour.
1: Uh, yeah, Doug Weston's Troubadour. Yeah, the Whiskey Go Go, uh, the London Fog, Pandora's Box, uh, Ciro's, There was a whole whole The bunch Losers of, Club. Yeah, the <laughs> Troubadour was one of the big ones. That was the the Troubadour is really where the whole country. The whole country rock, uh, mm-hmm. when it got started, beginning with Graham Parsons and uh, his Flying Burrito Brothers and uh, Poco, which was uh, kind of an offshoot of uh, Buffalo Springfield, and you know, carrying through to the Eagles, who made it this huge, you know, commercial force that it was. Uh, basically, what the Eagles did was take this pioneering work uh, done by Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman and others, and uh, turned it into this. Big, you know, commercial, uh, huge corporate—the <laughs> huge corporate entity that it now is. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, in fact, I still remember that there was kind of a protege that was going on, where the Eagles' protege Jackson Brown and Jackson Brown protege Warren Zevon, you know, and, and, and this thing. I want to tell you also in. Um, this is very reminiscent of the lighter notes that I read in um, The Best of Carla Bonoff when she breaks down how things were going out there. Because she was involved with a lot of those same personages, and of course, all the main players, if you remember from the Electro Asylum, I guess you would call stable uh, performers like Kenny Edwards, you know, and Russ Kunkel and Andrew Gold and all them. And, uh, and and she reminisces about having a 200-buck-a-month flat out in uh, uh, San Fernando Valley. So, But uh, in those liner notes, she talks a lot about the same things that you're speaking to also, about how things were back in those days. But there's also something else that's kind of curious uh, as far as commonalities go uh, with rock and roll, uh, with Laurel Canyon, and also with a lot of these stars, rock and roll stars, having been um, – sired by by family members a spouse or so uh that was in the military intelligence complexes
1: yeah to uh uncanny degree uh yeah there's there's, uh, there's a lot of them that that uh yeah there there's a, there's uh, yeah a lot of sons and daughters of the uh military intelligence complex running around and a lot of sons and daughters of uh Families that uh, have an incredible amount of wealth and political power, as well. Yeah.
0: Well, I tell you what. uh, (laughs) Can we uh, ding off a couple of these on the list here, if you don't mind?
1: Sure. Uh, Where do we start? Well,
0: uh, yeah, I was going to say with Jim Morrison, who you know, who nobody would associate with being the prodigy of uh, you know some heavy military folks. In this case, his father was a big naval guy, was he not?
1: Yes, he was, and yeah, that that's that's one of the ones that seems to uh, to seems to shock a lot of people. I've gotten more 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 uh, more responses concerning Morrison than anyone else. He has some very rabid fans who are bound uh, <laughs> and determined to defend their man, which you know I can kind of understand. But yeah, Jim Morrison was the uh, son of a U.S. naval admiral, and not just any U.S. naval admiral, but the one who was actually in command of the fleet of ships that was involved in the so-called Tonkin Gulf uh, incident, where two of our ships supposedly came under attack from uh, North Vietnamese forces, but later it was basically acknowledged that the never even happened, that they they basically made the whole thing up and used that as the pretext to greatly escalate the war. I mean, immediately immediately following that of course was the, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which gave the president, you know, pretty much unlimited powers to wage war and right after that we began massive bombing campaigns that didn't stop for years and we immediately we almost immediately began shipping the first Uniformed uh, ground troops over there, and within within a year of that incident, we had uh, two hundred thousand two hundred thousand men already uh, over there in country. More more in in one year than than we've than we've built up in uh, over in the Middle East in you know five or six years or however long that nightmare's been going on. So there was just a huge, massive escalation of the war that occurred right after this incident. And uh, the guy that was in command of those ships at that time was Jim Morris's dad, of all people. Yeah, very odd, very small world that, that uh, at the very time that the father's over there, you know... Uh, working to create this pretext for a, you know, full-scale American uh, immersion into that war. The son's over here positioning himself to become this huge icon of the anti-war movement. <laughs> Very odd. And yet, and he never mentioned, never mentioned throughout his career, in fact, he, he was fond of telling uh, Telling reporters that uh, his, his his parents were dead, that his family was dead, and which a lot of people have written to me to tell me, you know, they say, well, you say that you know Jim Morrison never spoke out about his parents, but he used to tell interviewers that he was dead, and the reason that he did that was because he felt that they were dead to him. Symbolically, they were dead to him, and he wanted nothing to do with them. And meanwhile, I'm saying, well, then how come he was sitting on the bridge of his dad's ship? <laughs> you know one year before his band came out and and you know and and have you ever considered that maybe he did that because that was a very convenient way to avoid talking about who his dad really was? you know if you don't want to talk about who your dad was, you tell people that he's dead, uh-huh. and you don't have to talk about it right so uh, yeah i i I don't uh you know, I know it upsets a lot of people, but uh i just uh i don't know and I was a huge doors fan i still am to some degree, but it's uh i listen to the music in a little different way now i guess um it's just i don't know it's it's tainted in a way to me now you know
0: uh yeah, I understand that completely uh and i will i'll try to get back to the uh to the point of um what this really says about who these people might really have been uh, and um, and how much of a coincidence this all is because the next character of um, renown uh, that fits into this um, paradigm is uh, Frank Zappa. Yeah, Frank Zappa
1: was a hugely influential character in uh, Laurel Cavan for a while. He sat in, he uh, occupied the, uh, the sort of, what well, was sort of a communal house throughout the uh, mid to late 60s, which was Tom Mix's old log cabin, uh, which, despite the name, is not like uh, what you'd expect a log cabin to be. It was actually a huge, massive, five-level uh, former roadhouse slash tavern, and. Uh, which he uh, holed up in for a while, and that that was sort of the major gathering spot for Laurel Canyon royalty. I mean, anybody who was anyone stopped by the Log Cabin, and uh, even though his band was never hugely commercially successful, he was very influential among his peers, and he started up his own record labels and signed up a lot of the bands. You know, a lot of people probably don't realize that He's the one that signed Alice Cooper and, and launched his career, and, and uh, you know some other people as well. So he, he was a, he was a very influential character in the canyon. And uh, his dad was actually a chemist at the Edgewood Arsenal, doing uh, chemical warfare research. Is that? In fact, is Frank that? Actually, lived there for like the first seven years of his life. He lived in uh, military housing on the grounds of the Edgewood Arsenal and attended the uh, Edgewood School. So he was a, a product of the Edgewood Arsenal of all places.
0: <laughs> now wait, is, is Edgewood Arsenal, is that the one in Maryland?
1: Yeah, okay. yeah, outside of Baltimore. Yep. Yeah, great. Right. Very infamous facility, uh, It's you know, the, it's been the home of, of U.S. chemical warfare research for decades and decades, and it also comes up Rather frequently in like the MK Ultra research it's been, been linked uh, repeatedly to various, you know, projects and sub projects of the uh quote unquote MK Ultra program. So I yeah, I mean anybody that's done any conspiracy research at all is pretty much knows is familiar with with the Edgewood arsenal, so When you hear that this huge figure in the in the in the music community at that time was a a direct product of that facility, that's that's that definitely sets off some alarm bells for me. Yeah, and then you know, I mean, and then there's John Phillips. John Phillips was another hugely influential figure. He was, you know, not only the founder of the Mamas and the Papas, one of the one of the most commercially successful Laurel Canyon bands, but he also co-organized the Monterey Pop Festival and wrote the song that uh, kind of served as the siren song for the for the Summer of Love that that was sung by his buddy uh, Scott McKenzie. Uh, the song uh, "San Francisco," be sure to wear flowers. I was here hear it. was right. a Wretched song, but everybody <laughs> knows it. So he
0: was—he was a—he
1: was, was a hugely influential character, also uh, on the music scene and in sort of uh, disseminating this whole music scene to the rest of the country through you know through the Monterey Pop Festival and and drawing people into the the Summer of Love and all that. And he's got more military connections than I mean, it's just his his dad was a career Marine Corps officer, uh he himself was a, attended Annapolis uh, Naval Academy, his first wife, who was a direct descendant of John Adams and Don, and John Quincy Adams uh worked at the Pentagon. His uh sister older sister Rosalind worked at the Pentagon his brother was a retired marine with uh, combat experience who became a dirty uh, DC area cop and his mother worked uh, her entire career in some capacity for the federal government so i mean everybody around his his entire family worked directly for uh you know the 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 military intelligence complex uh, everyone but him supposedly or that's what we're supposed to believe that even though you know everybody that, that that surrounded this guy was was uh you know employed by the defense department in some capacity and even though he you know attended military academies and graduated from Annapolis and you know had all these other strange uh you know biographical details that you know we're supposed to believe that that he had nothing to do with any of that. You know? <laughs> Which I find a little hard to believe myself. Uh, you know, especially when you considering that that he's just one of many many of the people in Laurel Canyon that that had that kind of background. I mean, if, if it was just one or two of these guys, maybe you could overlook it and say you know, okay, that's a coincidence or. You know, this guy went into this career because he's rebelling against his parents' values, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when you come up with, come up to a time after time after time after time, it kind of gets a little difficult to just sort of, uh, you know, write it off as, uh, you know, a coincidence or, you know, a, an aberration or what, or what have you.
0: Well, that, that's where I want to go in, in this, um, as we're approaching the uh the bottom of the hour, uh, and again, folks. And, and let, this is a good time to just take a departure for a second. We're talking with Dave McGowan. Uh, Dave, uh, you want to give the website and um, and how people can find out about not only this series but the past uh, uh, information and articles that uh, you've um, disseminated?
1: Yeah, yeah. The website is www.davesweb.cnchost.com. That's uh, Dave's Web, D-A-V-E-S-W-E-B dot c n c h o s t dot com. Kind of a pain in the butt, but uh. that's
0: all right. And, and uh, for those who can't write that fast, um, along with uh, the um, posting of your uh, URL and the link to the audio, uh, will be your uh, website as well, so they can click on that. In fact, as they're listening to it now, whenever now should be, uh, they can also hit your website as we speak. So. Not a problem. But now what's interesting is you have a lot of information up there, but you don't sell a whole lot of things. Is that correct?
1: Uh, I don't sell any. <laughs> I'm not here to sell anything. I, I, uh, No. I mean, I do have three books out, but the most recent book that I put out was uh, Program to Kill, which mm-hmm. I think was released in 2004. So it's... Uh, been out there for a while. Still a good book if anybody wants to read it. But yep. no, I'm not. Uh, I have nothing, um, nothing to pitch, <laughs> unfortunately.
0: Well, program to kill. I think. What, would you call that your favorite baby? Would that be correct?
1: That is, uh, yeah. That's that's one of my proudest accomplishments. Uh, yeah, I I I really like that book. I, you know, people have very mixed reactions to it, but. Uh, of the three, it's the one that I'm I'm proudest of. Yeah.
0: And what are the other two titles, Dave?
1: The other two titles, the one of them uh, one of them goes all the way, almost almost a decade old now. It's hard to believe. I think it was published in '99 or something. It was uh, derailing democracy, and the, and then in 2001, I think was uh, understanding the F word. So those are both yeah those those are even older ones, so uh yeah, I have nothing uh, I have nothing new to sell, just my my new series on my website, which is freely available to anyone who wants to uh, venture over and take a look
0: and again, we we're talking about inside the l c the strange but mostly true story of Laurel Canyon and the birth of the hippie generation, and um, admittedly, uh, you were born in sixty, um, I have nine years on you, so uh, a lot about what you wrote, I got a chance to, you know, like I said, be a participant in to a certain extent. Uh, but for yourself, I mean, not that you had to be born when I was, or even before that, to to appreciate that. But uh, you also, um, now, did you have older siblings uh, that kind of like had music hanging around that you might have listened to, might not have listened to, unless... You know, you had somebody older who was playing stuff that you kind of, you know, like that happened with my sister, uh, who's you know eight years ahead of me. I mean, I was hearing rock and roll when I was six years old, and it kind of like all sank in. Did you have a situation where you had someone older who was into this, and it kind of just by os- osmosis got into you as well? A little, not too much. I, ha- I have
1: two older brothers, but we were very, very close. My uh, The middle brother is one year older than me, uh, and my okay. oldest brother is two years older. We're a Catholic family. My mom was just pumping them out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, we were literally like a year apart. I don't know how the hell she even did it. God oh, bless her. <laughs> she would have had more, but she had problems with delivering me, and the doctors told her she couldn't have any more. She would have pumped out more. But, uh, yeah, so I-, I do have two older brothers, but... Uh, not a great deal older, but they they were into music a little before me, and, and probably got me into it a little earlier than than I would have otherwise. I remember the first concert I went to; I was like probably like 12 years old to see uh, Three Dog Night at the uh, Forum which was interesting, and uh, I was actually going to go with my mother because <laughs> I wasn't old enough to go alone, <laughs> and we happened to have an older cousin who was out visiting from Iowa at the time, and I ended up going with this cousin of mine who was like 19 or 20 at the time, which was very cool because it spared me from having to go with my mom.
0: Yes, right.
1: <laughs> so yeah, the first concert I went to, I was I was very young, and I was shocked that, that like all these people around us were smoking pot and stuff. <laughs> and I, just, I didn't know what the hell was what's going on. <laughs> so yeah, that was my first concert. And they, they were a uh, Laurel Canyon band as well. I left them off the list, but yeah, Three Dog Night was yet another uh, Laurel Canyon
0: band. Well, uh, I, and I, I think I got this right. Um, and this is just a little minutiae, which you can forget about as soon as it comes out of my mouth. But I think Chuck Negron is a Jersey guy. Um, and uh, if memory serves me correctly, uh, I had a, a good friend in the Jersey days, uh, who lived across the street from his sister during the the high point of Three Dog Night, and uh, of course he uh, fell on some hard times, and I think apparently has reinvented himself and is kind of going back out and, and singing again. But um, uh, did, I mean, did you? Uh, not, I don't know how much, how deeply you went into. Now you do address uh, uh, Negron and uh, Three Dog Night. Uh, did you find a? Not that this isn't really necessary, but if he had Jersey roots in not?
1: Ah. Uh... I can't remember. I think he may have. I, I I'd have to look it up. I know I have it in my notes. I, he was a basketball star. He was a star athlete, and I, yeah, he was a, a renowned uh, basketball star. I know. That. I don't remember all the details of his bio. Uh,
0: well, he got into some bad, bad uh, drug situations, didn't
1: he? He, yeah, he ended up really, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, the, the band was hugely successful. I mean, just massively successful. Uh, just a just whole string of, of uh, hit his singles and hit <laughs> albums. and made tons of money and uh, yeah, then he developed a just a major heroin addiction, yep. and uh yeah went through, went through like something like two dozen attempts at rehab that all failed and ended up actually living on the streets homeless and penniless uh for a while and uh finally cleaned himself up yep. and, and uh, I think he's doing better now, although his son also went went through a, a major uh, major ordeal. I don't know how he's doing now, but uh, yeah, he he definitely fell on hard times and uh, almost ended up uh, bludgeoned in the Wonderland House, according to his own account. According to his own account, he was. He was a regular buyer from that house and had set up a buy that very night, but uh, because he was already trashed, he fell asleep and never made it over. Or uh, he might have ended up one of the bodies on the floor of the of the Wonderland house. This is so, this yeah. Is, he uh, he definitely definitely hit some bad times.
0: So Negron might very well have been uh, in the Wonderland house when. Um, Uh, Manson's uh, posse uh, uh, descended upon them.
1: Well, it wasn't Manson. It was actually uh, Eddie Nash's posse uh, in the Wonderland House, and uh, including John Holmes. Uh, You know, that's 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 an interesting story in and of itself. But yeah, that that happened in Laurel Canyon. A lot of people probably don't realize that Wonderland Avenue runs right through the heart of Laurel Canyon, and uh, so yeah, it's kind of odd that, that what is considered to be the most brutal mass murder in uh, LA history, ha- you know, occurred in this uh, exclusive, remote, uh, you know, very serene, rustic uh, neighborhood. Played host to the most brutal, m- brutal murder in the is- city's history.
0: Now, is that um, account uh, chronicled in any kind of movie? It- was there a movie out there about Ah? Uh,
1: yeah, it's a about- Val Well, it was actually it was fictionalized in uh, Boogie Nights. The incident was sort of fictionalized in the movie Boogie Boogie okay. Nights by uh whatever that guy's name is, the guy that did the Marky Mork? Um, no no, I think what? it's the director, I can't but uh but it's 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 handled in a much more more literal, realistic fashion in a movie called uh, Wonderland with Val Kilmer. Right. It gives a few different versions of the crime from different people's perspective and kinda of leaves it to the viewer to decide which which one or which combination of ones is, is the truth. Yeah, so uh yeah, Chuck Negron was uh was a regular visitor there and uh His bandmate, Danny Hutton, uh, lived right down the street. He lived on Wonderland Avenue. A whole bunch of them lived on Wonderland Avenue. That band, did you know that that band, by the way, was uh, basically formed by uh, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys?
0: No, had no idea. No, not even a connection.
1: Yeah, it's uh, Danny Hutton it was one of his best friends, good buddies. He hung out with uh, Brian all the time, and uh, Brian sort of started them out. Uh, it was originally called Redwood, and uh, he recorded their original demos and, and uh, got the three guys together, Hutton and Negron and uh, Corey Wells. And uh, yeah, he was the he was the original driving force behind uh, Three Dog Nights, Strangely enough, with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Jeez.
0: Well, that's another whole story too with the Beach Boys, and I won't go into that right now. But yeah,
1: Dennis Wilson, and yeah, uh, that's, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then Brian Free, you know, frying his brain for the most part, and some of the stuff they were involved with, and, and there's another character in there too, uh, uh, Terry Melcher, right? Isn't that Doris Day's Son? Terry Melcher,
1: yeah, he was yeah, he was he was a uh, big player in the Laurel Canyon scene. Yeah, he produced uh, the Birds, you know, the first big Laurel Canyon band. He he produced a lot of the albums that, that came out of there and was closely associated with a lot of these musicians. Uh Good Buddy with Dennis Wilson, him and uh Wilson and uh Greg Jacobson is uh like a right-hand man who was married to actually to uh, the daughter of lou costello the old-time comedian and uh, yeah they were the three of them wilson and uh melcher and uh jacobson were, were major players in a lot of this stuff and uh, they called themselves the golden penetrators by the way that was the nickname that they three of them uh gave themselves and i'll
0: i'll leave it to you <laughs>
1: your listeners to uh figure out why
0: <laughs> well that, that goes that's right up there with the honey drippers so <laughs>
1: yeah but yeah the three of them and of course their fourth buddy charlie manson who was very much a part of that of uh the whole scene yeah and was very close to to melcher and wilson and you know lived with lived with uh wilson for you know the summer of 68 and yeah, and you know, had visited the Cielo Drive house with Terry Melcher, who lived there before Polanski and Tate, and yeah, this, that whole—I haven't really got into too much of that yet, but yeah, that's a, that's a whole other thread mm-hmm. that runs through this story. is the whole Charlie Manson angle and all of the people that he was connected to, and uh, yeah, particularly Melcher and uh, Wilson.
0: Okay. Also, that number is very large among the uh, Laurel Canyon alumni. Are uh, two very heavy hitters who joined together, but came from different beginnings. Uh, and let's take them one at a time. First, the, the two of them are Stephen Stills and then David Crosby. Uh, but let's take Stephen Stills first. That's that's another uh, an aha about where uh, he comes from.
1: Yeah, uh, according to what I've read, and I've, I've had more a little more trouble digging up biographical details on him and some of the other guys, but from what I've gathered, uh, yeah, his father was a uh, career military. Uh, He grew up basically in Texas, but his father spent a considerable amount of time in Central America, uh, Panama Canal Zone, El Salvador, Costa Rica, various other places. And, you know, of course, as everyone knows, uh, Central America has been a hot spot of you know, covert uh intelligence and military operations for as long as anybody can remember. And that's where uh that's where his pop spent, you know, a lot of his time down there and occasionally Stephen would, would go down there with him and, you know, he attended uh, you know, military academies and schools on military bases and whatnot. And I mean basically he had the same sort of uh military brat uh, upbringing that, that all the rest of these guys did. He was surrounded by, you know, military and, and intelligence types, you know, and uh, attended military schools and came from a military family and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and he also, the, one of the most interesting parts about the Steven Still story is that later on, uh, he used to tell people, like to tell people that he had served a term of duty over in Vietnam. Which is universally dismissed. Every time you, you see it in the literature, it's immediately followed by a dismissal that it that was just a drug, you know, drug-fueled delusion that he had, and it couldn't have actually happened because he was he showed up on the Laurel Canyon scene at the very time that the first uniformed troops were were uh, arriving in Vietnam, and he remained in the you know public spotlight for the rest of his life. So obviously, he couldn't have served a term of duty. But what all of these people uh ignore, you know, deliberately or otherwise, is that we had we had people there from at least nineteen sixty one on, uh, you know, hundreds of, of quote unquote advisors who were actually, you know, CIA special forces personnel over there, you know, doing their thing covertly before we introduced ground troops. And, you know, given his background, his family background and whatnot, um, it's entirely possible that that he <laughs> that he could have been uh you know served served some time over in Vietnam you know in the early days back before we you know before we were openly engaged in Vietnam he, he very well could have and you know that's that's what he told people and of course you know nobody nobody wanted to believe it but you know to me it's it's entirely feasible that he could very well have have done that so that's Stephen Stills. Uh, David Crosby is an interesting character. He is uh, also the son of a uh, military intelligence guy, World War II military intelligence guy, uh, Floyd Delafield Crosby. But beyond that, he's also, his his full name is actually David McCortland Crosby, and he's actually a the offspring of these three, sort of very closely intermarried, intertwined families, the Van Rensselaer, Van Cortland, and Van Schuler families, which, if you look them up, has produced just uh, this whole slew of important people. <laughs> I mean, just, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Navy admirals, generals, uh, Supreme Court justices, federal judges, U.S. senators, congressmen, state senators, governors, you know, I mean, it's... Family has occupied every conceivable position of power in, you know, the, the uh, political and legal realms for since the founding of the country. Um, and he's also a direct descendant of both uh, John Jay and Alexander Hamilton.
0: Oh, but also, Dave, I tell you, those families that you mentioned—Van um, Rensselaer, Van Schuyler, Van Cortlandt, along with uh, Roosevelt—they comprise. What we call, you know, the East Bank families uh, that go back to the beginning uh, Dutch uh, patroons uh, along the Hudson River. I mean, that you know, those names are all there to be seen to this day. Rensselaer, you know, is a county in New York, and Van Cortlandt, um, uh, Rockefeller's place is now also up in that area.
1: Yeah, the, those names are all over the place. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't realize it till I started looking into it. But, yeah, I mean, there's a Van Cortlandt Park in New York. There's a, a Van Rensselaer Hotel. There's, I mean, there's, yeah, those names are attached to all kinds of, uh, you know, parks and public buildings and, and the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And, yep. yeah, I mean, they're just, they're everywhere.
0: Oh, but that's that's reminiscent, though, I mean, of the rich Dutch that were here, obviously, in, uh Finally gave way to the British but um, and you know the, like I said that whole East Bank is just rife with their uh, well you can go there and, um, and and go on their estates and also another one that's involved in that is uh, Vanderbilt so um yeah that was uh, that was some kind of neighborhood on the east side of the Hudson River and that extends right up through that uh, Albany area uh, where again you know where Rensselaer County is and also um, uh, Rensselaer Institute. So yeah, I mean that—that's some family to be hooked into, and, and Crosby's in that bloodline, is he not?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, he carries he, he carries the name. <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely <laughs> definitely in the line of descent of that family. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, yeah. So yeah, and there there were others as well. I mean, uh, one of the other one of the other. Uh, on the scene, who, who never, you know, made it as big as, as some of these other people that we're talking about, but he was very much on the scene. Was uh, Ned Doheny, who was uh, an offspring of the uh, Doheny clan, the uh, you know the oil family that, uh, for those of you who've seen the movie, um, There Will Be Blood, uh, the book that that's based on, oil was actually inspired by Ned, the uh, senior Ned Doheny. And so the uh, the homicidal Daniel Plainview character is actually based on uh, Ned Doheny, and uh, it's a very extremely wealthy family. They built uh, built what back in I think the 1920s they built the uh, Greystone Estate, which is said to be the most expensive private residence ever built in Los Angeles County. This is a hugely wealthy family, uh, wealthy and powerful family, and. Uh, yeah, one of their offspring, uh, Ned Doheny, was was another uh, member of the Laurel Canyon crowd, and Graham Parsons also. His his uh, his family owned something like a third of all the citrus groves in Florida and Georgia. It was just massively wealthy family. Then um, he uh, he was another another member of the uh, Laurel Canyon royalty. So yeah, if you, if you go down the line, that's that's what you find. You find either military intelligence background or just
0: uh, these just these hugely wealthy and powerful families, or both. <laughs> yeah, but you know, Grant Parson too. That was such a strange episode with him upon his death.
1: Oh, that was just yeah, very bizarre with the whole Manson connection through Phil Kaufman and yeah, that was
0: Oh well even the way to dispose of his body if you remember, that only got a whole bunch of other rock and rollers and in, uh, convict- uh indicted rather uh when they when they burned his body out in the desert.
1: Yeah, yeah, they kidna kidnapped his body, uh I don't know if kidnapped is the right word, stole his body, whatever. It
0: is. Well they said they were executing bad choice of words. Uh his wishes to be to be cremated in the desert.
1: Supposedly, yeah, and the whole story is just weird because, I mean, he it was, it was under, like, uh, LAPD guard and, you know, these two, uh, like, just, you know, disreputable characters, Phil Kaufman, I don't remember who the other one, pull up in, like, this beat-up old hearse that they'd gotten somewhere with, like, broken windows and all that and just, you know, supposedly just snatched this body, like, right out from under the nose of the LAPD and, and then uh, took it out to Joshua Tree and yeah, ritually burned it like on the uh, summer solstice or the equinox or some such thing. And, yeah, by uh, all masterminded by Phil Kaufman, who was the a, uh, a, uh, Graham Parsons road manager. But before that, he was a buddy of Charles Manson's in uh, Terminal Island prison, and uh, later in, in the canyons, he, he hooked up with him again later. Uh, when they both got out of prison, Manson got out in '67 and Kaufman in '68, and uh, yeah, and this guy, this this ex-con friend of uh, Charlie Manson, somehow managed to become the road manager for like the Rolling Stones and the Flying Burrito Brothers and all these other bands.
0: <laughs> is, I know it never ends.
1: Which is kind of, I mean, yeah, what the hell was that guy even do, you know? <laughs> well, but, yeah, he's the one that he's the one that snatched uh, Parsons' body and took it out and burned it. Which, which was just one of weird, one of many weird deaths in the Parsons family. By the way, the entire family got seems to have gotten bumped off uh, over the years, one at a time. So,
0: also, Grant Parsons is, is is forgotten for the most part because he really wasn't on the tip of tongues, on the tip of tongues back in the '70s either. But every well, those of us who remember uh, remember him as a seminal member. Of the Flying Burrito Brothers, which spawned off, you know, so many artists that went into other groups. So Rick Roberts with Firefall, Bernie Leiden, you know, it goes on and on and on.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, he was right on the cutting edge with, even before that, with his International Submarine Band, which was the band that he had when he first showed up in Laurel Canyon. And then uh, that one disbanded and partially reformed as the Flying Burrito Brothers, along with, you know, Hillman from The Birds, yeah, and uh, Barney, one, right. Bernie Letton, who would go on to the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean he was he, he, the sound that he came up with. Is, I mean he was hugely influential on the Rolling Stones too in That's their right. country phase. You know the the country honk and uh, yeah.
0: Well, hence the song that he does is a tribute to them, Wild Horses, right?
1: Yeah, he actually recorded Wild Horses before First. they did. It was actually released on his album before the Stones did their own version of it. And uh, although it, it's credited to, to Jagger and Richards, it's it's pretty well. You know, assume that that Parsons had a major role in uh, writing that, as well as some of their other country-influenced uh, songs that they had on whichever I don't know was it Beggars Banquet or I don't know one of their albums was a really heavily country-influenced, and that yeah that was that was due to Parsons. And I mean the the entire the Eagles' entire career right was was uh, <laughs> was based on taking what Parsons did and commercializing right. it basically. In,
0: in fact, I, I think you could say. Uh, that Parsons was a founding father of, of country rock, and also uh, he saluted somewhat in the Eagle song Hickory Wind that's on the, on the Border album.
1: Oh, did they record Hickory Wind?
0: Yes, they did. Yeah, and that's all about Parsons. Because when I came into this in '73, I believe Parsons had already—well, died, well, he, of course he had died—and I had no idea. And somebody said, "No, that's that's where it all starts. When you listen to that song, they're talking about Grand Parsons, and that's the person who birthed all this. There'd be no Eagles without Parsons.
1: No, there would be no—no, there, there, no, there probably would have been no Jackson Brown, and right. you know, a lot of these. Uh, that whole that whole sort of country rock." Uh, movement that, that came out of that, yeah. He, he, he spearheaded that whole thing, pretty much.
0: What I want to do is we only have about uh, five minutes left, and I won't go into any more personages, and we really just touched upon that first part of the four parts you have right up uh, uh, on the uh, website right now. Uh, Again, the uh, series is called Inside the LC: the strange but mostly true story of Laurel Canyon and the birth of the hippie generation. But I want to ask you an outro question. You can have the rest of the time to go ahead, if you don't mind. We're hoping to see you back perhaps in a week or two, Dave. But, you know, when you look at these people, um, I'm going to play devil's advocate, another bad choice of words, but <laughs> when you when you look at these uh, individuals who come out of families uh, who have a foot in uh, heavily, if not both, into military intelligence work, whatever, government. Uh, they, now, if there's a conspiracy, I'm going to deal with that perhaps when we talk to you again. But I'm just going to ask you, is there a chance that obviously these individuals, these offspring of military government types probably have some really good genetic material, a decent IQ. Could it be that, that they just, with, with their gifts, uh, rebelled against m- mom and dad and went off on this thing? I, and I'll just leave it right there because then there's other things we can talk about in another interview. What's the chances that they're just really gifted, had the best of the best, and chose perhaps to, and, and of course, obviously they had to have a music, musical inclination, otherwise this would not even, we wouldn't be talking about them. Yeah. What's the chances that they just said, you know, I mean, they're gifted, but mom and dad, I think you suck and I'm gonna do this.
1: Um, I think if if it was just a, in a, in a few cases, I I think that there would be pretty good odds that that was that that, that was what what was at play here. And and in, the, in some of these cases, a few of the cases that that may be what is at play, but it's very hard for me to believe that that so many of them could have the same background and that they could all just sort of magically come together in this one little remote spot perched in the hills above LA, Uh, especially considering that a huge number of them came from the Washington DC area. I mean, just an uncanny number of them came directly from the uh, the DC area. And it's just, it's very difficult for me to believe that that it's just sheerly coincidence that all of these these people uh just happened to come together in this one little isolated place and they all and almost all of them happen just happened to have the same sort of uh you know the same the same background if you dig deep enough and there's no doubt that, that a lot of them were talented i mean I, I've I've been a huge fan of uh, of the music for for a very long time, and you know I mean to me there's there's nobody who's ever picked up the instrument can play the guitar better than Jimi Hendrix, you know, and and nobody's ever matched the the, the raw power and emotion of of Janis Joplin's vocals, you know, and, and on and on and on. I mean Frank's not Frank uh, Zappa was was I'm not a huge fan of his music, but I can recognize that he was a incredibly talented musician and composer uh, so they definitely did have talent I mean it wasn't that they were just sort of put in this position because of, of their backgrounds I mean they, they did have the, the talent to back it up uh, there's no doubt about that but my question is were they the only ones I mean was there nobody else you know <laughs> was there no just average Joes out there yeah, right. in the country that had this uh that had the talent and the ambition to succeed or was it only the people that had the connections who got who got the lucrative contracts and all and all the heavy promotion from the record labels and the radio stations and whatnot.
0: Well um, I tell you what, of course I have to agree with you, and we'll get into that uh, in a second interview, if we could. Um, But I at least wanted to throw that out there because that would—I guess—that's what some debunkers would say. It's just like, hey, you know, you have this strain of rather uh, high-quality genetic material, and they're going to do what they're going to do. But I don't think you and I believe that uh, at all.
1: I I don't believe that. Yeah, I mean, you know, (laughs) we talked about Graham Parsons a little bit. Uh, He—he also, his dad was a uh, military officer, and he attended, you know, military academy. And uh, in in the last few years of his life, when he, he went solo, his uh, main collaborator was Lou Harris. That's who he worked with on his two uh, uh-huh. acclaimed solo albums. And she was also the daughter of a career Marine Corps officer. And she grew up in Woodbridge, Virginia, which is home to the uh, Harry Diamond Labs uh, Woodbridge facility, this big, huge military <laughs> research and development
0: facility that just... Uh.
1: Dominates the town that she grew up in. Well, Are you familiar with that, by the way. Oh
0: yeah, and I mean, yeah, and mean yeah, Grievous Angel, uh, she was involved in that, I believe. I'm not sure. Is that right? Mm, I don't know. But uh, Emmy Lou Harris, oh, don't say, say it's not true. Not Emmy Lou Harris. I <laughs>
1: know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and 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 well, I'll tell you real quick.
1: Do you know anything about that Woodbridge facility? I looked it up. I I, I I'd never heard of it before, but I uh, well, uh, it's one of the things when I, when I find out where these people were born, I look it up on MapQuest and see what the hell. Uh, I, I
0: I'll tell you what. I honest to goodness, when I was in the bureau in the FBI, and I didn't last long. Uh, we were just all young guys then. Uh, yeah woodbridge was was talked about, and uh, what 's interesting also uh, as an aside is that woodbridge also had a kick and bluegrass uh, station that uh, on the f m dial which I listen to all the time, but you know everything in and around virginia i mean reston and herndon and and well you know and woodbridge and
1: go yeah. and
0: all that. I mean, the place is just crawling. It's like Spook Central.
1: I mean. and that's where most of these. I mean, if you look, that's where most of these people came from. You know, I mean, uh, Morrison, uh, Cass Elliott, and John Phillips all went to high school in Alexandria. Alexandria. You know, uh, just, just on and on and on. Uh, you know, Zappa <laughs> was just right around, just right nearby there, and uh, just outside of Baltimore. And you know, Tim Buckley and just it just goes uh one of the monkeys was, you know i mean it's it's just amazing how many of these people came out of the virginia suburbs lining uh washington dc just time after time after time you know.
0: <laughs> when you go to the store and actually during those days uh in the bureau i lived both in alexandria the rose, rose hill section and then moved up to i didn't like virginia at all and i don't think they liked me and i moved up to laurel maryland where uh, rock uh, where uh, no not rockefeller what's his name george <laughs> Wallace got popped. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, uh, We used to go shopping in the area where he, uh, um, was assassinated. Of course, he didn't die. But anyway, that whole section, there, You never, when you go up to somebody there and you're dealing with someone, you never know who you're talking to. You know, even if you're in the 7-Eleven, you, you just never know who anybody is because that place is so rife, you know, with military and intelligence type and government type. So, yeah, uh, yeah nobody who, is who they seem they are. <laughs> and you got to be really careful, or like myself, not be, and, and then you don't stay very long in the bureau. Yeah. so.
1: Is a popular place. Also, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of these people lived in or around uh, Norfolk, Virginia, which I guess is the home of the, like the world's largest uh, naval base. Naval. That's right. Oh, yeah listen we've been- yeah, I mean that whole area around there is uh yeah,
0: and
1: yet, and yet they all ended up on the other side of the country in this isolated little community up above uh you know in the hills above l a and and a huge huge proportion of them came right from that area that you're talking about from Arlington, Alexandria, Norfolk. Uh, you know that that whole well, it, li- it, li- li- beltway or whatever they call sure. it there. I, I don't, I've never actually been to, to the East Coast, so I'm not that I only know what I see on the maps. You know,
0: well, but. all those uh, 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 communities are outside the beltway for sure, but I mean it's still it's just loaded. I mean you talk about Edgewood, which anybody driving down 95 uh, will, will I don't know if it's you know, the signs are still there, but I mean, it, it said there was an, you know, Edgewood Arsenal on 95. And then also, uh, you know, when I lived in Laurel, I wasn't that far away from guess where, Fort Meade and uh, and that legacy. So, I mean, it's, it is, it's just a different place. But, you know, it's so interesting that some of these, uh, and a good deal of these rock and roll personages were spun out and wound up in the complete opposite area from where they had been. You know, and that's from the East Coast to the West Coast and to uh, L.A. and also up into San Francisco. And I'm thinking of another name, too. I don't think it's associated with Laurel Canyon. But, I mean, John Denver, was he not also a military brat whose name was Dusendorf?
1: Uh yeah, I believe he was. I haven't really looked into that cuz it's not directly related, but uh, yeah, I believe he was and and of course, you know, there's been questions raised about about his death as well. And we haven't even we didn't even get into that in this hour about just this phenomenal number of these people or people closely connected to these people who died these very uh Curious death at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's astounding how many of these people uh, didn't, didn't, uh, <laughs> weren't with us very long. No,
0: didn't live to full bloom. Without yeah, a
1: doubt. not even close. No, I mean they were just dropping like flies. It's, it's, it's uncanny.
0: And also, uh, we will get into that in another interview if you wish. But it got to be so actually frequent that you know we kind of like. How should I say? Sardonically kidded around about uh, who would we nominate for the all-time dead band. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I don't mean Grateful Dead. I mean it was just like there was just so many dropping off. I mean, like so, what's what's Heaven's band? In fact, I think who was that? Bill Medley did a song about that, about all the people who had died, you know, and it would be up in Heaven and or wherever they they go and play. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just like, what's going on? And that whole era, I mean, you were, you know, probably what, eight to 10 years old? Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, we had just gotten out of high school and we're looking at all this completely crazy stuff. But it's, you know, I mean, between bombings on campuses and of course, Kent State had happened, uh, uh, Woodstock was in bed, uh, Monterey did not work out well, and, uh, and all these deaths. Althamon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, Altamont is the one that's most infamous, right? Yeah. Uh, it is a Monterey, you got that right. And, you know, we just sat there and we watched all this stuff, and it's amazing how a young person just kind of assimilates this or makes some kind of sense or just blocks it off in a compartment of their mind. Because when I look back at that, if that were happening today, who, oh, man, who knows? And we may see that happen. But back there, I don't know how we made sense of it unless we just ignored it and tried to go on with our lives because I don't think there was a crazier time than the mid-60s and the mid-70s.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, it, it was, uh, there were just people dropping left and right, especially, yeah, especially uh, the Laurel Canyon crowd, and uh, yeah, the, the Manson murders were just, uh, which were very closely connected to the Laurel Canyon scene, were just really just the tip of the iceberg. There was just, I mean, there were... There was two girls' bodies dumped in in Laurel Canyon in the late 60s, I think in 1969. Uh, two of them in one year that were just dumped on the basically in the brush on the side of the road. One of them, the daughter of a of a uh, intelligence operative, of course, and the other one never identified. And I mean, they were just bodies turning up everywhere, just not not just to the. Of the you know rich and famous like you know Hendrix and Joplin and Morrison mm-hmm. and Parsons but uh, you know a lot of a lot of other people connected to the scene the girlfriends of both David Crosby and Graham Nash Jackson Brown's wife and I mean just on and on and on and on it is just it's uncanny.
0: Uh, uncanny is definitely the best word we can use for that but it was strange and very strange and to this day it exists as the same. All right, Dave, listen, thanks for the time that you spent with us. Uh, again, we're talking with Dave McGowan. The website is davesweb.cnchost.com. That link will be up next to the audio, no big deal. Uh, The series we're talking about is Inside the LC, the strange but mostly true story of Laurel Canyon and the birth of the hippie generation. Um, What? Are you laughing there?
1: Uh, I was was laughing. The the title derives from the fact that... when you're when you're looking at anything concerning hollywood it is very very difficult to to sort out fact from legend hence the title the strange <laughs> but mostly true <laughs> i mean I, I don't know if you've ever delved you know dove into the dirt of hollywood but man it is just it's it's not easy to navigate through there's just so much you know, uh, or so many legends and myths, and uh, you know, trying to figure out, and, and a lot of stuff that is true that is written off as legend and myth, you know, to, to divert attention away from it, and, and some stuff that really is legend and myth, and. It's very hard to sort out the truth from from fantasy when, when you're dealing with Hollywood, because everything's a friggin' fantasy in Hollywood.
0: Well, they named it after the wood of the holly, which was a favorite wood used by the magicians for their wands. So, uh, you know, I, I think the, uh, the naming of that part of uh, L.A. is not uh, unintentional, let's put it that way. I didn't know that.
1: It's interesting.
0: Yeah, well, there's one down in Florida, too, and somebody said, so what does that mean? But apparently Hollywood, Florida was supposed to be the film capital, East, which never happened. So there was an idea to do the same thing out in California that they did here, and they hence the name Hollywood. So, uh, but yeah, it comes from the, the, the wood of the holly, which was uh, the Druid's... Uh, 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 Juan's uh, composition.
1: Huh, well, that is appropriate, then.
0: Oh, it certainly is. <laughs> and So, it also reminds you, too, of like the movie uh, uh, Chinatown at the end, although it's not a Hollywood thing, it's an LA thing based on fact with the Water Wars. And of course, when uh, they had the last scene, the cop tells Nicholson, Jake, it's Chinatown. Yeah. Nothing makes sense. Don't try to. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, he was a big, he was a big part of the Laurel Canyon scene too. I haven't even got into all that yet. The whole the, the yep. whole Young Turks angle with uh, you know uh, Peter Fonda and Hopper and Bruce Dern and uh, Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty and all these guys they were all a big they were a big part of that scene as well.
0: Yeah, no, and we're, we're, you're getting there, and we won't jump ahead of you, so. Um, you know, oh, with, with Easy Rider and The yeah. Trip and <laughs> no.
1: all of that, you remember all, all the stupid exploitation movies? Oh, absolutely. That, that, uh, yeah, I mean a lot of people probably don't know that Jack Nicholson actually wrote the the, movie, the, the screenplay for The Trip about an LSD trip, and also. Uh, wrote the screenplay for the Monkees movie, Head, strangely enough.
0: Well, st- uh, I, I was going to go there, and strangely enough, if you look real close, when they had that restaurant scene, who's being ushered out of the restaurant but Jack Nicholson?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a cameo in that. I think Hopper did, too. Uh, Hopper. Uh, right.
0: Yeah, Hopper was also with him.
1: All of these people were very closely intertwined—the the, the music scene with the sort of young Hollywood scene—and uh, right. yeah, it was all it was all just one big happy family living there in the canyons. All the sons and daughters of uh, the military <laughs> intelligence complex running around bumping each other off, which you know if that's what they want to do, it's none of my business, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, I tell you what, with this, you've opened up a can of worms. But I tell you what, it's. Um, It's certainly an interesting can of worms, and and we're not done with it by any means. So uh, thanks for for, uh, delving into that area, and who knows where this is going to lead. As you said, uh, it it has many, many tentacles, and uh, uh, hopefully you'll come back in a week or so. Is that all right, Dave?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah.
0: All right, listen, thanks for being with us on this weekend, and you take care of yourself and look forward to talking to you soon.
1: Okay, you too, thanks. All right, bye-bye, Dave. Bye.
0: Yeah, we don't need no stinking heroes, but we could use some good information, and that's why I hope you folks turn in, uh, tune in to uh, Beyond the Grassy Knoll, as we rebirth the second show in this year 2008. We have with us again today, after having done a pre-record, we have Dave McGowan with us, who's working on a very interesting and very, I should say, um, arousing uh, series called Inside the LC, the strange but mostly true story of Laurel Canyon. And the birth of the hippie generation. Uh, we, we did a pre-record, as we said, he's on live now. A lot of you folks might want to ask questions and make some comments. We've got a ton of stuff that came through emails, uh, to that effect. And I think we'll start the show off with that if that's okay. So Dave, thanks a lot for coming back. And, uh, I would say, uh, you got a live one here. Uh, yeah, it seems to be, uh,
1: <laughs> taking on a life of its own. This is actually, I think the, the, third interview I've done in the last uh, week or so and I got two more uh, lined up all of a sudden I'm uh, I'm a very popular guy <laughs> well which paradoxically is, 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 uh, slowing me down on finishing up this series now because I'm just getting inundated with emails and interview requests and, and, uh, it's kind of weird. I'm not, I'm not used to being such a popular guy. <laughs>
0: well, this too shall pass.
1: <laughs> I, I'm used to working in obscurity, you know, and just, uh, <laughs> not having anybody really, not too many people other than my, my devoted followers, my small, uh, cult of devoted followers who uh, pay, atten- pay much attention to what I have to say, so it's, uh, it's kind of weird to, uh, to, be- to have this sudden popularity.
0: <laughs> well, you know, well, was good see you in a sense, because obviously when you put something out like that, uh, no matter how people feel, I guess, about politics, Dave, no matter how they feel about Flight 93, blah, 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 um, everybody in my cohort, which you were probably a little bit just beyond. I mean, like I said, I got like, what, nine years on you. But, I mean, you understand what that was all about. Anyway, a lot of those folks actually do get it. Uh, I guess we've lived long enough that we we realize we've been lied to. I, I think that happens with age. I think this has been happening for some time. The older folks always said stuff to the younger folks, and I will admit, I listened to it and looked at them and go, yeah, okay, Grandpa, I'll take a hike. He was right. <laughs> I was wrong. But um, w- along with music, though, this is a very special thing. Um, I, you know, growing up inside of it, I thought this was a very organic thing, and we're going to get into that definition of it. I'm going to ask you for your definition of it because some of the questions that came in wanted to know about whether or not this whole thing was rigged or whether partly it was rigged, um, et, cetera, et cetera, But um, let me, uh, if you want to uh, give us any comments with regard to that, by all means, uh, because if you don't, or after you do, I'd like to uh, pass some comments and questions by you.
1: Well, I certainly grew up believing that it was organic, Um, you know, like I, I think I mentioned, it's, it's getting hard for me to remember what I've, what I've covered in these various forums now, cause, uh, but I, I think- I think we talked before about uh, that I was born in 1960 and actually sort of uh, came of age in the uh, the mid mid late 70s. But I always considered myself a a child of the 60s, and that that was the music that I listened to and and the fashions that I wore. And you know, I mean, I was I was uh, wildly up with my peers when I went to uh, college because it was like. I started college in uh well I went to junior college and I I transferred to UCLA I think in like 1980 or 1981 which was the the dawn of the Reagan uh, era and uh the whole campus was like filled with all these preppies you know wearing Isaac Lacoste shirts and top mm-hmm. I mean it was like the official uniform and here's this uh Here's the '60s throwback wandering the campus, you know, and bare feet and long hair. <laughs> so I, you know, I I I totally bought into it, uh, you know, pretty much my entire life up until maybe like you know ten years ago. I started having my doubts and you know started reading things like um, uh, Martin Lee's Acid Dreams and uh, you know various other works. It kinda of called into question, you know, just how much of it was organic, but I I always believe that at least the, the the music, the soundtrack of the sixties was real and organic. And uh unfortunately in the last year, year and a half I've I've even begun to seriously question that and that's uh sort of what brought about this, this series. Um which I began with a quote from uh even still, still. for what it's worth, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear, and I have to say that after close to a year and a half now of digging through this, it's it's still not <laughs> it still ain't exactly clear. But I'm hoping that by the time I, I complete this journey, it will have all uh, come into some kind of a focus.
0: All right, fair enough. And, and let me run by you. This is a comment, and. Um, yeah, I'm not saying I agree with it or not. It doesn't make a difference. I mean, this is what the folks are thinking and let me run this by you. Okay. But um you guys started talking about a lot of uh, these musicians from the 60s uh, that were children of people in the military. It was real cool that you mentioned Jim Morrison before his name was even brought up. I said to myself out loud, yeah, such musicians like Jim Morrison. And you guys mentioned his name. However, I had no clue that Jim Morrison's father was involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident. That was real news to me. If this is true, then Morrison obviously knew what really happened there leading to the Vietnam War. Now, I'll stop right there. I don't really think he might have, but Dave, do you have any uh, information to the fact that he did?
1: And if so, does
0: that make a difference?
1: I no, I do not have any specific information that he knew. I, I mean, he he knew obviously that his dad was uh, deployed in that arena. I mean, he basically saw him off. Like I have a picture of him on the on the, uh, bridge, on the bridge ship yeah. with his father in January of 1964, not long before. Uh, he shipped off to go over to that part of the world. The uh, incident occurred in August of '64, so I mean it was just literally just months before uh, the ship set sail. So he knew his father was there. He knew that his father was the commanding officer of the fleet that was there. So I mean, you know, I, I suppose he could have uh, deduced that that his dad was directly involved. But uh, I, don't, I don't have any specific information
0: that that. Uh, Well, no, I mean, um, and like I said, I can understand uh, the individual running with that, and he might, in fact, be true. So let me finish up with his next paragraph. He said, more reason to prove that he was definitely murdered. All right, now hold that for a second. He probably spoke too much. Imagine being someone working in intelligence and knowing that there was a real famous musician out there in the world whose father was there at the Gulf of Tonkin. Obviously, this man's son would know the truth of what really happened, and his popularity would obviously pose a threat to national security. If this is true about Morrison... Then it is final, he was definitely murdered. That's just to name a few, of course, with the, what the people are talking about. Um, but again, we really can't say well, well, I mean, you tell me. Was Morrison whacked, or did he do himself?
1: Uh, well, to, in, to my mind, there's two possibilities. If he was, and if he did indeed die, when when uh, we're told he did, and and Bearing in mind that, that there was never any body produced, there was no autopsy, there was no service, they didn't even announce his death until he was allegedly in the ground. Uh, he was buried within four days, supposedly, despite the fact that he was a, you know, a U.S. national and a very famous one. Uh, they, they, they cleared all the hurdles somehow and got him, uh, got, got everything done and uh, his body in the ground within four days. Before it was even announced that he was dead, so by the time they had announced that, uh, that he was gone, uh, it was basically, but there's nothing to see here, you know, don't, don't bother coming around, cause, uh, he's already buried, there's no, you know, I mean, nobody ever it saw the body, and there there was no office there no service held, so. The first question is, did he even die in Paris, Uh, which is an open question in my mind. But if he did, if he did, in fact, die over there, then I would say that uh, there's a very, very, very high chance that he was murdered, yeah.
0: Um, Also, I have to understand something as we go into this season, especially in Florida, which we've not had to worry too much about, but as dry as we've been, it is uh, now the hurricane season. However, I just want to say to you folks on the East Coast, Um, There may be some kind of disruption due to uh, storms on the East Coast. This is something that we might have to live with uh, if uh, those things happen to visit us in Florida on Wednesday. So if you've got uh, some issues that you might think are um, contributed to uh, uh, the weather, they in fact are. uh, Anybody else who's trying to listen to the show, uh, you can, um, if you're having a problem, go ahead and refresh and try to click in that way and tell me how you make out. yeah, we really don't know about Morrison, but of course, this isn't just an isolated case. But we'll get back to that a little bit later. What yeah. I like, Mor-
1: Morrison yeah. also—he he had told a number of interviewers he had talked about sort of reinventing himself. He said he could see himself uh, uh, having a radical career change and sort of transforming into you know, the same person. I mean, the guy who just. Uh, yeah, he was a bit of a changeling and and he had talked about about uh about, you know, basically just sort of uh, reemerging as a as a completely different individual, a uh, completely different profession and and everything else. So I think there's there's a lot of open questions about whether Jim Morrison really died over there in Paris.
0: All right, oh, we also have a caller um and uh, let's take them now, Dave. Uh, hello caller. You're on. Nope. Oh. No, <laughs> I got a message from the producers saying, prank call, they are gone. That's okay. Let me just say this now, folks. If you do want to call in, you can do so on triple triple three nine zero zero nine. And when you call in, you're not going to get somebody who's going to hook you in as a screener. But if you call and then you start to hear the show, you are in and we will get to you. So you're not going to hear anybody say anything to you. You hear the show and you call in, you're there. So uh, be that as it may. Also, let me just say this also, that... um You can also send emails to Visigoth at hotmail.com, Visigoth at Verizon.net. You can use MSNIM, the messenger, and that would be Visigoth. And uh, again, we're hearing from people that things are a little crazy, but this is summertime, well, you know, for the most part, summertime in a lot of places in America, and certainly that is the case uh, here in Florida. So, uh, you know, things will happen with the weather. If you get bounced out, uh, it's probably due to that. Come back in if you can. If you're having a hard time listening to the conversation, Um, then go ahead and uh, refresh. Um, Okay, and that's that's what I'm getting for the most part here. So, Dave, I have to do a little bit of maintenance here because everything's coming through um, on my screen. But on to um, a second item, if you would, Uh, and this is from a listener from over in Paris. Um, Let's see. Okay, here's a couple of questions that being posed. Dave mentioned that only two years ago he was completely unaware of Laurel Canyon. Be interesting to know what tipped him off in that direction, his path to discovery, so to say. What do you think? Uh,
1: it was actually a book that my eldest daughter got for me uh, for Christmas. Uh, not this, not this uh, past Christmas, but the one before. Uh, a book called Laurel Canyon, written by a guy named Michael Walker. It was. Uh, barely newly released at the time and uh it covers the the Laurel canyon scene it kind of introduced me to the fact that this this uh this sort of uh, remote isolated neighborhood in LA had had uh had had been home to all these these this was just amazing array of musicians and there was a lot of little clues a lot of little little uh warning bells that went off in my head as I was reading this, sort of reading between the lines. And so ever since then I've I've been reading everything that I can get my hands on about that that era. Uh, just every book and magazine article and web post and everything else that, that uh that I can get my hands on, ferreting out all the little the little sordid details that are, you know, sort of hidden in, in the, the mainstream accounts of that era.
0: But that had to be something also, Dave. That you weren't really, you know, you didn't need all that kind of priming. I mean, it was kind of probably there anyway. And this gave you a bit of a what, of a, a little bit of a trigger to go do it. Yeah, pretty
1: much. Yeah, but well, I mean, it, it, well, the thing that that just instantly drew me to the story and the, that was so fascinating to me is that it was, it's so close to home. You know, I mean. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. So close to me, and it's somewhere that I can actually go and, and visit. I mean. You know, I can jump in my car and in, in 15, 20 minutes be be at these places. You know, seeing them for real, how they mm-hmm. how they look today, and sort of getting a a feel and a vibe for the place. So I was just just instantly drawn to the story by by you know a number of factors. Um, and one one of the key ones of which is that it just it happened right in my backyard here, and I didn't even know about it. <laughs> that's you know, that's the way things go. <laughs> yeah, I, I was kind of offended by that in a way that you know I've been doing, I've been researching this. I've lived here all my life, and I've been researching this stuff for a, a good number of years, and yet, uh, and yet they they pulled the wool over my eyes on something that happened right behind my back. You know, so that's uh, how dare they?
0: I know. Uh, yeah, exactly. How dare they? <laughs> but it's always in your own neighborhood. You don't know what the heck is going on. Yeah. All right, we're going to uh, go on with um, uh, some questions, and comments from. Uh, Uh, Erky out in uh, uh, Paris. I'd like to hear both of your views on the relationship between the organic and inorganic. In other words, something was very real and authentic during the 60s, organic. And something was contrived, inorganic. How did one influence the other, and to what level? I'll stop right there. There's a third part to this, but um, you tell me what your take is, because I came to this of late also as to what might have been you know, rigged. What do you think about what really truly was an evolution, if you would, or a revolution, and what might have been also either injected into it, or you know something other that turned it down a side street.
1: Um, I, you know, any more and more, I'm of the opinion that that what we think of as the '60s counterculture, which is the the whole hippie, flower child, uh, you know, freak, whatever whatever term you want to apply to it, movement, I think I, I'm. I'm really leaning heavily towards believing that, that that entire thing was a fraud, every aspect of it from from beginning to end, and that there was a very real a whole a whole series of very real movements that were budding in the 1960s in the in the early 60s a budding anti-war movement, a budding uh, civil rights movement, a budding uh, uh, women's rights movement, uh, a budding Black Power movement, you know, through the Panthers and whatnot, and I, th- I think most of those, most if not all of those, were, were, were very legitimate, and and uh, the, this whole uh, sort of hippie thing just kind of moved in and overshadowed over that all of that, and sort of became identified in people's minds with what the '60s were all about, and uh, so I, I think that whole aspect of it was was a sham.
0: What? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that makes any sense. Well, well, you make a good point. Um- when you went back, and I think you quoted, uh, I don't know if it was uh, Abby Hoffman or whatever, saying, you know, the anti-war protesters um, were protesting the war in Vietnam before the hippie generation or the flower power children came on the scene. Now, that is not necessarily exclusive what you said, so can we assume also that the real hardcore political uh, elements were against the war and then all of a sudden the love, the love children come through? and either kind of help or hinder what's going on. Uh, what's your take on that as far as what your research uh, uh, revealed?
1: Yeah, I mean, they, basically the, the way the way that I understand it is that there there was a uh, an anti-war movement underway uh, largely on uh, college campuses, you know, with uh, professors and their students and whatnot, and, uh, you know, with respectable people, you know. <laughs> And, and then the hippies kind of came in, and all of a sudden all the focus was on them, and they became identified as sort of the protest movement and uh, I think mean, that was a very calculated move because it's a lot easier to discredit and marginalize and you uh, a group of you know these these long haired uh, strangely dressed uh, you know, hippies with with their peace signs and their their peculiar music, and you know, I mean, it was just they were so foreign to you know to mainstream America. Uh, I mean, they just looked like you know people from from another world or something, and. And that made it much easier to marginalize uh you know what the uh, anti war movement that developed because all the focus was on them. the media presented them as the face of the anti war movement the uh you know the whole hippie generation, but they weren't i mean or at least they weren't the ones that originally got the ball rolling and you know would have would have kept it rolling. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, I mean, everybody always says that the, the hippies stopped the war, the 60s counterculture stopped the war, and yada yada. but they didn't. Yeah. It, it carried on for an entire decade after the, the hippies came along. It didn't end for an entire decade after, you know, almost, what, 60, 000, close to 60,000 Americans had been shipped home in pine boxes, you know, and they didn't stop, I, I, I think they very much Uh, contributed to the extension of the war by by diluting and taking a lot of the wind out of the sails of what would have been a very strong anti-war movement if they hadn't have uh, appeared on the scene.
0: Um, I'm I'm going to reserve a comment, but I want to go to the last uh, uh, component of this email. Um, The the individual writes the idea that Jimmy Hendricks and Jim Morrison... For intelligence agents is absurd, at least to me. The idea that intelligence agents enter their lives is not. How do both of you see the interaction? Go ahead, Dave. Dave. Uh,
1: well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I agree that the idea that intelligence uh, operatives enter their lives is not absurd. Uh, but you know, I mean, these people frequently kill their own, you know. I mean, just because somebody is, 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 gets whacked, it doesn't mean that they were one of the good guys, you know. <laughs> no. So, uh, you know, I haven't really gotten into Jimi Hendrix too much at all. I, I, all I mentioned was, uh, you know, really the unusual circumstances of his death, uh, he was not a huge part of the, the Laurel Canyon scene. He identified with uh, San Francisco, although he did spend time in Laurel Canyon, and, and according to some reports, he had it maintained a home there for a while. But I haven't really focused that much on him. Um, Jim Morrison, I think, is much much more suspect than uh, than Jimi Hendrix as far as yeah uh, you know, whether whether he was a covert agent or not.
0: Um. I'll have some more information for you that I want to run by it, but I, I want to at least vent what came to us through the listeners because obviously, you know, that's why we do the show. So let's do this. Now I don't know if you want to go here, but I do want to go here, and um, you know, however you want to deal with it, that's fine. Uh, I just think it needs airing. We do a lot of things on symbology, Dave. Um, And the bigger picture about you know I guess spiritual forces, if you will. Uh, I know that's kind of open ended, but I'm going to just throw this out at you. Uh, Somebody wrote who who was um, who was in Freemasonry, and he said when I took my third uh, degree in Masonry, we went through the story of Hiram Hiram Abiff and the three unworthy workers. And he goes on and on and on, but uh, you know I don't want to go through the. I mean, not that it's, it's it's tedious whatsoever, but I want to get down to the kernel of what he was talking about, and that is in Masonry, the laurel branch l a u r e l the laurel the bush has a has a significant meaning in Freemasonry now, let me ask you this I don't know if you've come upon it I don't know if you will come upon it or if you want to completely i guess uh, dispense with it, but are we looking at a little something going on in laurel County that might have been dealing with a quasi secret society What's your thoughts on that ah uh, i I haven't really
1: looked at it from that angle. I, I'm not familiar at all with the uh what you were talking the about. The symbology of Laurel, yeah. Yeah, I, I that's not a an uh that's not that has not come up in in any regard in what I've read so far, so I haven't not looked at it at all from that angle. All
0: right. I mean that I mean I'm wondering if that will come up, but also what I'm wondering is uh as you go deeper into the history of Laurel Canyon, which you did in part two, to a certain extent. When you get back to Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne and such, I'm wondering if it even goes back to that. Uh, who knows if you can uncover that? I don't know that you want to do that, or if it'll pop up all by itself. But I'm wondering if inlaid in in the history of Laurel Canyon, if there wasn't a little something there that that had a wink and a nod.
1: Uh, it's quite possible. I mean, you, you, I never know what's going to come up in, in this story. To be honest with you. I know. Last time I talked to you, you asked me about uh, John Denver. I, are, are, you, are you the one? I think you. Yeah, one.
0: we talked about. Um, yeah, yeah. Dussendorf and.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and and I said, well, yeah, I haven't really looked at that because he's he's not a part of you know he hasn't he hasn't come up in the story at all. Well, no sooner did I see it, <laughs> the very next day he came up in the story, and sure enough, he he moved to L.A. in uh, 1964, and he actually joined a band. Uh, that uh uh Roger McGuinn, I believe it was of the Birds had been in same band as, as one of the Birds and uh turns out he was he was he was present uh, supposedly according to some reports he was present at the uh the infamous riot on the Sunset Strip and I think it was November of 1966 uh and yeah so he actually <laughs> come to find out, no sooner had I told you that he wasn't a part of it, than I came to find out that he was a part of it, and, and you were right, he's the son of a career uh, Air Force officer, I believe it was, and like a lot of other people in the stories, there's a lot of open questions about his death, uh, so yeah, he fits right in. Well, <laughs> he fits right in with the rest of these, same family background, same mysterious death, same you know I mean, it's... Uh, it's amazing how many people are, are rolled up into this story. People you wouldn't even, you know, Glenn Campbell was very much a part of the scene. And, you know, I mean, these people that you wouldn't even, you know. I know, It's, I know. it's, just, it's, it's just weird. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, the story just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I am I, I don't even know what to do with it at this point, you know. There's just so many tentacles pointing out in so many directions. It's like, which... You know, which leads do I follow and,
0: and you know, and how
1: far do I follow them? Because then they branch off into other, you know. So, mm-hmm.
0: Well, in, in fairness to you, if I remember correctly, uh, you did not dispense with the fact that uh, John Denver might have been part of it, but you said, you know, mm, good point, And we left it at that. And lo and behold, you know, days after we spoke, you find out that, in fact, he was involved in the LC as well. And we've got some more. Um, um, Emails coming in. I want to put this in a, in a, in a kind of an order where we can—I don't know—I guess do it in a way where it isn't a uh, hodgepodge. But and uh, Karen, um, I've got your email, and I definitely want to get to it because you want to know about Manson. I'm going to hold that off if we can, uh, but we definitely want to address it. Also, Dave, we got this. Um, we uh, we get it from Larry. He said I just finished listening to the show on Laurel Canyon in the '60s today. And it blew my mind. Well, gee, that's where it all came from. <laughs> um, I had never given much thought to rock stars and their heritage of military intelligence connections. I knew about Morrison, but chalked it off to rebelling against his father that he you know, lied about his parents being dead since he was ashamed of his father being a high-ranking military officer. Today, when all these icons of the 60s rock counter, uh, counterculture turn out to have military intelligence connections, then Dave's question was very appropriate. My question here, I guess, is this. What do you suppose the odds odds are that all of that just came purely together by chance? Uh,
1: I, I think the odds are astronomical, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't gotten into it yet. I'm going to in a future installment, but I can give you a little sneak preview. And that is the, another aspect of the story is the, Hollywood Young Turks, what were known as the Young Turks angle, because they were very much a, uh, part, the young Hollywood stars who were also very much a part of the Laurel Canyon scene. Peter what, Fonda. what year was that
0: when the, when the Young Turks uh, had their uh, bones?
1: Uh, Mid sig, like from 1965 on, uh, it was, you know, P- uh, Peter Fonda, Bruce Dern, uh, Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, um uh, Jane Fonda well she wasn't a young Turk I guess she would be a Turkette or something so, <laughs> okay. you know, there's this whole group of people that, that also Canyon Peter Fonda had a place there Dennis Hopper did uh, you know uh, Sal Mineo lived right at the mouth of the Canyon so the, this whole little Click of of young Hollywood actors who were making the, the the scene on the Sunset Strip clubs and were living in Laurel Canyon and, and making movies in Laurel Canyon. I don't know if we talked about that last time. Uh, the movie, the the monkeys movie. Oh Head, yeah, and,
0: when Nicholson's in there. Yep, yep. Yeah,
1: and and the trip and Easy Rider. Those movies all sort of came out of Laurel Canyon. They were they were very much part of the scene. And I've been looking into their past, and some of them have a, even more. More troubling uh, connections than the than the uh, the rock stars that they were hanging out with. I'll give one example: Bruce Dern, uh, oh, yeah. who he co-starred with Fonda in *The Trip*, and you know he was very much a part of that scene. And uh, his uh, uncle on his mother's side, his mother was Jean uh, McLeish. His uncle was Archibald McLeish who was Skull and Bones, class of 1915, the year before Prescott Bush, who was class of 1916. And uh, his um, grandfather on his dad's side was a former Secretary of War, which was what we call the Secretary of Defense slightly more honest times. (laughs) And his godparents were uh, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and... um, uh... adelaide stevenson the guy who twice lost to uh... eisenhower eisenhower yeah so i mean his family he 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 comes directly from this whole stew of you know skull and bones and and department of defense and i mean so and that's true also of several of the others so it it was not just the musicians who had gathered in the canyon who were the offspring of the military intelligence comp all uh... Young Hollywood actors that they were hanging out with as well. So I mean, you know, at some point you gotta say how how many coincidences does it take to make a conspiracy? You know, and, and <laughs> to me, I think I, I, we passed the threshold a long time ago on this story. You know, so that would be, I guess, my answer. To <laughs> yeah, it's it's way too much for me to accept as all coincidental.
0: Um, I'm just going to enter this now. Uh, cause this is about you, not about me. Uh, although I was there and, you know, <clears throat> anyway, I mean, I, you know, I saw it all. I, I went through a, a, a bunch of stages. Um, but the one thing that um, I now question when I look back, and we will talk about it now, is that um, the whole introduction also of Ellis, I think, is very, very interesting. Um, uh, Ken Kesey, who I revered as a writer, you know, he's the author of um, Sometimes a Great Notion and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <clears throat> Of course, he is the subject, Tom Wolfe's uh, the electric acid test. But when they had acid, and it was not against the law because nobody knew they had it, although, of course, it is suspected that the army intelligence created it. And of course, they, you know, they, they had the, uh, the concerts down on the coast where the warlocks play who later became, um, the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Nice and, name, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. And then, of course, uh, the famous trip on the bus with uh, Neil Cassidy driving as they go across the coast uh, and they uh, eventually end on the east coast and they were talking to uh, Leary and then came back but you know the one thing and I don't want to go into it now so I'll just leave it there but I mean if we can go to that later on about the whole introduction to LSD that's interesting too but let me go to the oh yeah
1: and and the fact that it it remained legal for as long as it did during that time, you know, when there was supposedly all this harassment and everything going on, and yet LSD remained perfectly legal. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the cops couldn't arrest you because there was no law against
1: it. You couldn't smoke a joint, but
0: you could drop acid, you know. I mean, oh, well, you get your ass busted for smoking a joint, but if you're doing acid, they just let you alone.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah. Re- Seems very odd, doesn't it, in retrospect, yeah. that they, they wouldn't have immediately clamped down on that? I mean,
0: yeah, and it, it, that's why I'm saying, but uh, I think uh, you're going to come to that also at another time, but I, you know, just to, to kind of whip the appetites of people, that's the one thing that I think really bothered me, how straight up Kesey was. But, and of course, because Keezy. I worked on a psych ward, uh, which gave him the fodder for the book, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes, yes. He also studied at Stanford, with is the Stanford Research Institute, and I can't hook them both up, but it's kind of interesting as well. Um, but that for another day. Now, we got a comment. It said, I am fascinated regarding the links between these people. Someone knew someone who worked with someone else, and in the end, there are often bad endings to people, mysterious deaths and such. The fact that so much of the music was so good, agreed so brilliant in many cases, agreed, was the music itself generally contrived as some, some part of some plan, in quotes, to change society. I would love to hear more about the parents or other family members, even in some cases the celebrity themselves, being involved in intelligence. What has been the overall goal, goal and uh, has it been met? Uh, and lastly, was Manson suspect as well as um, strange intelligence connections? All right, that's a lot of stuff, and probably not all for this moment. But let's do this. First of all, I thought the music was excellent. I think it was. I I, I firmly believe.
1: It. I I still have the records in my collection. I mean, I uh, yeah, it's it was. uh it, it, i mean for for a very long time after that there wasn't anything worth listening to on the music. i mean the music of the seventies and eighties was pretty much wretched you know <laughs> uh yeah i th- i th- i think the music was 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 very good and and it it stood the test of time um to what degree it was contrived i i couldn't really tell you but uh, you know i would definitely agree that the that the music was uh it's, it 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 has definitely stood up to the test of time, in my opinion,
0: and mine too. And again, but you know what this goes back to. And Dave, I don't want to spend any time on this. It's sometime in the future. You want to do something? That's fine, because we can't open this oyster right here. But I mean, we we have treated the um, issue whether or not the Beatles were handled by a composer of some note who has gone like below the uh, you know radar screen. Now, it would be Theodore Adorno. And um, whether or not they got together in England, because Adorno uh, supposedly uh, uh, fled Germany prior to World War Two, and John Colin and his conspirators' uh, hierarchy and some others uh, put the Beatles with Adorno together so that they were trying to get something done. Now, that's like for another time. Just leave that where it is. But the fact that there is some kind of suggestion that. Rock and roll was being handled in some uh, some fashion, but like again, not for another time. Uh, um, but moving on to another question, uh, and, and let me get back to this again. okay, what about uh, if we can, um, as far as you've gone with this, let's just kind of flip over because there's a couple of people that want to know how much Manson had a hand in what was taking place in that particular era.
1: Well, he was—he was very much a part of the scene. Uh, I mean, virtu- virtually all of the the big name musicians that came out of there in that era knew him. Uh, most of them don't like to admit it, but uh, you know, some of them have. Uh, one of the guys from Canned Heat admitted that, that they used to party with the, the Manson family. You know, he auditioned for Neil Young. He auditioned for. Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, he, he uh, auditioned for Dennis Wilson, and he was recorded by Dennis Wilson, he was recorded by Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son, who was a uh, producer of the <coughs> the Birds and various other bands. And, I mean, he hung out at, he was known to hang out at Mama house, he's been reported to have been at uh, John Phillips' house, some of his followers reportedly lived at the log cabin that uh, Frank Zappo was the ringmaster at, you know, in late in 1968, according to Ed Sanders' book, uh, The Family. Uh, I mean, he was he was all over the place. His fingerprints are all over that whole music scene. Um, you know, I mean, you, you find references to him constantly throughout. He, he or, or one of his followers, particularly, uh, Bobby Mm -hmm. Bozolet, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, we were discussing that earlier, but uh, (laughs) uh, beautiful son, by the way, Um, he was very much a part of the scene as well. He actually lived in Laurel Canyon for a while and was the original rhythm guitarist for Mm -hmm. the band that became Love when they were known as the Grassroots. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Tex Watson, who, who was the, the leader of the expedition that went through the, uh, Cielo Drive house. He lived, uh, in Laurel Canyon on Wonderland Avenue. And, yeah, I mean, they're just, they're just everywhere. They're, they're all over the story. You can't, it, it's unavoidable. You just, you just keep bumping into one or more members of the Manson family
0: around every turn, pretty much. It is interesting, though, because it, it almost seemed, though, that he was at least dignified to some extent as having a little talent. I don't think, I mean, from what I can remember, and this is a long time ago, I mean, the Wilsons from the Beach Boys weren't necessarily blowing him off. I'm just sure that, you know, when he came into your living room, it was, he was kind of scary, you know?
1: <laughs> Uh I would imagine, except that he he always brought a huge gaggle of women with him, you know, and you know from the descriptions uh that I've read i mean he just he just basically brought this troop of of young girls with him that would just pretty much do and and service anyone that said you know. Manson wanted to get on the good side of, so, you know. Alright,
0: so in other words, he had a way of, uh, he had a calling card, didn't he?
1: He had a calling card, (laughs) yeah, a calling card that was very attractive to Dennis Wilson and his two, uh, sidekicks, Terry Melcher and Greg Jacobson, uh, which was, yeah, these just young, attractive, adoring women who would, uh, cater to their every whim.
0: Alright, I just want to let people know, too, we've been talking with Dave McGowan. The website, Dave, is davesweb.cnchost.com. But you know, it always, I mean, the link always goes up. Uh, Your link always goes up with the audio, not a big deal. But if you're listening right now, if you want to do that, you go to davesweb.cnchost.com. You can pick up all the newsletters that are right there at the top. The the, uh, website's also known as the Center for an Informed. For what? An Informed what? America. America, okay. That's when my printer stopped, <laughs> oh classy, isn't it? All right, no problem with that um
1: <clears throat> yeah, there's
0: a couple uh I should have
1: parts five and six up in the next uh few days hopefully they're near they're nearing completion, so.
0: Well, I don't think anybody's in a hurry as long as, you know, it, it comes out and it comes out right. I mean.
1: Ah, some of my readers are. I keep getting emails. What happened? You were putting them out, you know, every, and now all of a sudden, I'm like, just give me a chance. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I got to reboot. I got a lot of material to dig through and organize and, you know. I want to make sure I get it right. I mean, there's so much there's so much bad information in all the mainstream accounts. I mean, you you read something in one book, and the next day you read a a different version in another book that completely contradicts the the first version that you read. And I mean, trying trying to sort out the truth from the Hollywood mythology and and legend making is uh, is (laughs) I want to make sure I get it as accurate as possible.
0: You know, I say I don't want to waste a whole bunch of minutes, and we got something else from two people, three people that kind of resonate with the same question. I'm going to throw that to you, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what we're going to have this time, but I mean that's why I say the series goes on, and as long as you're okay at your convenience, we can go on and, and you know delve into some of these things. But yeah. um, you know, I mean when I would, you know, when all this stuff was going on, I'm like 17 years old, but I'm following it through the Daily News, you know, when I lived in New York area. And you look at this stuff, and, you know, to this day, you know, I try to think back as to how I just, like, assimilated all this stuff, or I, or maybe I just just offed it, because it was so bizarre. And, and, of course, the Vietnam thing was going on. I, I really do believe that all of us just took, took this stuff in, we threw it away, and we went on with our lives, because there's no world we were going to get deep into this and not get brain damage. So... You know, I, I'm just amazed at all that passed through us at that time. As much as people today, you know, yak about martial law and police state, that all might be happening. But you know, we really have to take a look. I don't know how you feel about this, but I mean, I look back to seventy to seventy-five, and I'm like, I don't even know how we get through this. <laughs> I mean, do you? you I mean, if you want to crack in on that, by all means. But I mean, it can get a lot stranger. <laughs>
1: yeah it's a very strange world we live in uh as i yeah the older I get, the more I realize that and the the deeper you dig down these rabbit holes you more the more you realize that it uh definitely is a very strange I, mean, I I don't know that anything there's very little that seems that that can shock me anymore you know it's uh yeah i you know the, the weird thing about the the whole hippie Movement is that it just seemed to happen so fast, you know. And I mean, how, how does that happen? That you know, I mean, it, it had to start somewhere, you know. I mean, how how do all these kids just all of a sudden end up adopting this this completely different lifestyle? That you know, I mean, different hairstyles, different clothing styles, different music, and I mean, how did that how did that just just happen so quickly that the, the, the all these kids just just all of a sudden woke up one day with
0: long hair and
1: And bad clothes, you know.
0: (laughs) But, Dave, the thing is, that happened without VHS, I mean, uh, whatever it is, the hell is it called? Uh, You know, I don't know. What's all the rock and roll things on, you know, on the uh, MTV, okay? Uh, This happened without MTV, without BET, and all these videos. This happened without wall to wall 24 7 TV. This happened without that. That's the thing I think is most interesting it's because they didn't have that medium to get to everybody all the time where the mom and dad were were watching what you were watching on TV. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, we weren't we weren't uh we definitely weren't all tied in as much to this, yeah, to uh yeah. to where we're all the, the entire country every every remote corner of the country is now fed the same daily diet of of crap you know from our news and entertainment media and and through the internet and whatnot and yet it still just sprung up i mean just it just just out of nowhere all of a sudden we had this this whole what 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 very quickly became the the, the largest countercultural movement in uh, in American history just sort of out of nowhere, almost, you know, and it, it is very odd that 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 it that it just that it happened like that, you know. I mean, <laughs> why, you know, why why this sort of this such a drastic countercultural movement, you know? I mean, what, what you know, where, where everything about them was sort of foreign to small town, you know, mainstream America. I mean, everything their their look, their their music, their attitude, and, you know. I mean. Yeah, it's 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 odd. It's very odd in retrospect. That, that, yeah,
0: uh, and, and let's hopefully revisit that in time to come. we got a couple of comments. One from Carpet Max said, If he's got kids, married and bored and turned collectivist. Well, I can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Also, we got another comment. Doesn't Shirley McLean have nebulous uh, family military origins or connections?
1: Ah, uh, Shirley McLean is uh, Warren Beatty's brother, obviously. That's right. And he was, he was again one of the, the young Turks, uh, that hung out with that crowd. His father was supposedly a, like a psychiatrist, psychologist, or a psychology professor or something like that. But, I mean, he, he moved around in, uh, in an unusual way. I think he was, like, born in, like, uh, Alexandria, Virginia, I think, and they, yeah, and then they moved to Norfolk, Virginia, you know, the 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 largest naval base in the world, and then they after that they moved to I think Arlington, Virginia, like the home of the Pentagon, and so you know, I mean, his whole early life was spent hopping around between these little you know military intelligence suburbs of of Washington D.C. So. Mm-hmm. Even though you know, his father, his father didn't officially work for for the military, but you know, you got to sort of. A lot of times, you got to kind of read between, between the, the lines. lines. Yeah. One of the things that surprised me really about this story is that so many of these people's military intelligence connections are right out there up front because usually you do have to read between the lines. I mean, CIA and all its affiliated. Uh, spy organizations, they're secret organizations, you know, they operate in secrecy, that's by definition, so they don't advertise, you know, their membership, so, you know, usually you have to read between the lines and, and look, you know, where did this person grow up, or you know, where, you know, where, where, where did the family move around to, and what circles did they, you know... Traveling and whatnot but you know so Warren Beatty's kind of one of those cases where and Shirley McLean also obviously because she's his uh, sister um, it's one of those where you kind of have to read between the lines but you know the, the amazing thing to me is is that is so much of the story you don't have to read between the lines and if there's that many people there that, that have open military and intelligence connections then how many of the other ones had hidden you know military and intelligence connections
0: um, I tell you what, uh, we got two heavy-duty questions. I'm going to ask you to just give, if you could, a, um, a cursory answer to them both. We can visit this later on, because I think you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to come upon this if you haven't already, but you know, we will revisit this. One message was uh, they had uh, mind control subliminal psychic messages put on records. Uh, Preston Nichols says this. Uh, he participated in this at Montauk. All right, that's one statement. Um, is there a possibility, whether it was um, back masked or whatever, that there were certain things in there? I don't know. I mean, are we looking at something that was triggering to uh, a generation that might have been medicated to some extent? It's
1: possible. I have not really looked in any great depth at that uh, aspect at all. I, I remember when I was a kid, the big backward masking controversy when I was. I don't know, probably in my young teens or something, I remember there was a big thing about it, uh, you know, so, uh, in Led Zeppelin's records, I, I, actually I can remember me and my friends spinning, trying to spin a Led Zeppelin, <laughs> you know, old 33 and a third, uh. <laughs> final record backwards on it <laughs> <laughs> <Make laughs> to, to see if we could hear you know and a Beatles one too to see if we could hear uh, Paul's dad or whatever the hell was supposed to be <laughs> you know? I know I know I remember doing it yeah but I you know as an adult and you know as as a researcher I have not really uh, no I haven't really looked into that aspect of it
0: all right um, and that, that might come in time and also, I do find it interesting, though, that they would plant that stuff in there. But that might have been a really great marketing scheme later on to get everybody to buy back albums. We have to, we can't overlook the fact that that was a really good marketing gimmick.
1: Yeah, I remember Stairway to Heaven had supposedly had that. I can't remember. You, my
0: sweet Satan. Yeah.
1: That so what do I? I don't. I remember playing that. And yeah, I can't hear it. and uh, Revolution number nine or something. was yep. supposed to say it, I it. buried Paul. Paul is dead. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, we checked into it. I remember checking into it. I don't remember if we if we heard anything or not. It probably depended on our chemical balance. At the The thing time. is,
0: some of us never checked out. <laughs> okay, we got it. we got another good one for you here. This will only take about three hours to discuss. Uh, I, I love. It. I wish these people would call in, but they don't. Anyway, I'm okay. Whether they're shy or they're at work, it's fine. Boy, I tell you, this is a good one. Are either of you familiar with the lore that early in the Third Reich, German scientists experimented with Nepalese and other indigenous shamanistic chants, combining them with repetitive percussive patterns in a quest to develop early NLP, which would be neuro-linguistic programming, and brainwashing techniques? It was suspected that they created proto-rock and rock and roll music before being ordered to shelve their findings. Might their research and results have been British war booty, for stock to perfect actually Dave that that makes a lot of sense if if you've come across some of the information that I've come across you know the listeners have but you know this is what I was saying to you about whether or not it was true about Adorno and the Beatles had they crafted music along you know the lines of trying to influence young people and I would I would have to say this right now with the, with the longevity, that hip-hop has had along with a rap I mean I got to think that there's something in there so I'll, I won't say anything more you know where I'm going with that do you want to address whether or not you know they've built in some things that, that deal with you know alpha beta uh, states of the brain I I couldn't
1: really speak to that I'm not familiar with the specific line of research that she uh, that, that you uh, your he
0: or she or whatever yeah
1: he whatever was referencing there you know I mean I know that 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 the CIA and probably British intelligence did, you know, uh from what I understand, get a hold of all of the uh secure all of the, the records of all of the experiments that were conduct uh you know, conducted on uh, the terminal so called terminal experiments and whatnot that were conducted by uh by Nazi researchers and you know, a lot of that had to do with uh, human tolerances, you know, human tolerance. Mm-hmm. Various forms of torture and pain, and just how far you could push a person um, in various ways uh, before they died, you know, as far as sleep deprivation and food deprivation and, and, you know, sensory overload and all of these different heinous things that they did to see how long the people could endure it before they actually died and of course i mean all of that research has has applications both in mind control and in uh interrogations um in both cases of which you want to you know torture your victim as close as you can to the point of death without actually killing them because if you kill them then you've lost your your subject you know or, you've, or your source of information mm-hmm. So you know, I mean, I, I I have no doubt that they do indeed have all of that information and and that it's utilized in in various unsavory ways. But I'm not familiar um, specifically with the, with the line of research that she was uh, discussing, or you know, or the uh, you know technicalities of of uh, you know. Music containing, uh, you know, so rhythms or, 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 you know, backwards, uh, mass, uh, instructions or, or anything like that. It's a little beyond my level of expertise.
0: No, and, and none of us really know. And, I'll, and actually I would say that, um, they're ahead of the curve only that, um, they've heard other, uh, I guess, uh, individuals just who spoke to that. That is not necessarily where you were going. That might be indeed where you wind up, but um, um, and yeah, I didn't want to jump you with that, but there seems to be something going on, and yet none of us really know, and nobody's really come out to say, look, you know, what's going on here is definitely a trigger.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, what's this guy Augustus? the big acid guru of the 60s up in San Francisco that had all the military and intelligence connections and served as an intelligence officer, and his, his family history contained like all these, you know, high ranking officials and whatnot. Uh, Augustus uh, Stanley was that Owsley. Housley. okay. Yep. Yeah, he he was uh, didn't he? He started out, I, I believe, as the Grateful Dead's uh, sound technician. You know, he was the one that sort of—that's of, right, Sort right. Yeah. of sort of shaped their sound, and he had a background in you know psychological warfare and intelligence operations, and then he became the you know the big uh, acid producer and distributor that that uh, showed up routinely at uh, all the big rock festivals and handed out you know like you know, massive <laughs> quantities of free free drugs to people. And, yeah, so he started out as a And there were other, as I recall from Martin Lee's book, Acid Dreams, I, I believe there were other people that were involved as sound technicians for some of these various bands that had, like, these intelligence uh, connections. So, you know, it is quite possible that they, that they were tailoring a specific sound, you know, or a specific pattern of sounds or specific rhythms or, you know, whatever the case may be, but you know, again, I I just don't have the technical knowledge to to really address that in in any sort of you know scientific way.
0: No, and you need not. But it'll be interesting as you go, uh, you know, through your research whether it'll come up, and not even if you want to delve in that. But if you actually, you know, that that does ding up more or less where uh, uh, where your research leads you. Um, I think we can admit, though, uh, David's and we're running, you know, about three minutes left to go that certainly this didn't happen on itself did it i mean you know I, I can't speak for music during the 30s and the 40s and what they were hoping to get out of that but i would but i'm I'm assuming that you know perhaps 60s and 70s music probably had some kind of hmm, embedded edge that music before it did not have what's your thoughts on that
1: Well, it certainly was a revolutionary new sound. I mean, it didn't sound like anything that that had come along before. It was, you know, it wasn't like a continuation of what had previously been considered, you know, rock music, you know, in the, you know, Elvis Presley, Everly Brothers kind of mold, you know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was was a completely new and different sound, and it was a completely new and different look that the, 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 the hippies and flower children had, and, you know this this uh, simultaneous mass infusion of drugs, you know, into the counterculture. Just uh, there was a lot of things that that were completely you know new and different that all sort of came together all at the same time, which is you know very odd. You know, that, <laughs> to my mind, that that all of these these uh, elements would just sort of spring up, you know, simultaneously all at the same time. And, And across, you know, pretty much across the country. At a time like, you know, as we were discussing earlier, we weren't sort of all plugged into this sort of mass
0: consciousness. Um, Let me ask you this. If you were to look at one group that you felt probably had the most influence in in politically affecting rock and roll listeners' um, minds, what what group would you think? Off the top of your head. I guess it would
1: probably be the Beatles. Although I, you know, I haven't really looked into the whole British invasion angle, so I can't, you know, I don't really know much about them. But uh, I would say probably the Beatles, you know, and specifically John Lennon. Yeah. And
0: and that would bring us also to another very interesting situation with. What or maybe
1: Bob Dylan. I don't. But no, probably the Beatles. Go ahead.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, no, it's just that, well, we're going to pick this up because we're out of time. But, I mean, you look at what happened at Lennon. Is that also a coincidence? Listen, uh, thanks, Dave McGowan, for being with us. Folks, you can go uh, to his website, and you'll see the link on my site. And you can plug in to see what's going on here. Dave, thanks a lot for being with us, and we'll talk in the near future, bro.
1: Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, there'll be uh, many more parts going up, and uh, if you see something you want to talk about, I'll be more than happy to come back.
0: Remember those words. We'll be back. Thank you very much, Dave. All right, thanks. All right, bye-bye. bye bye. Bye.